This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is learning from hardships and adversity. In the first half, Monty R. Swain shares his address entitled, He Cares More About the Shoulder Than About the Wheel. Then in the second half, we will hear from Niwako Yamawaki with her BYU devotional address, An Immigrant's Journey Toward God. Today I want to address my remarks to you who may be feeling a little tired and a little worn down, who may be struggling with feelings of frustration about being a student at BYU, who may even be feeling a little cynical about what we're trying to accomplish here. There are some challenging days here. There are days when a teacher, an administrator, a classmate, or a roommate does not speak or act as one should in Zion. There are days where you or I do not speak or act as we should in Zion. There are days when we are confused about a policy or a process that seems inconsistent with Zion. Sometimes we experience a bit of an emotional whiplash when our life gets bumped hard by an experience or a challenge here that is painful. Painful enough that it pulls us up short and we find ourselves saying, Wait a minute. I thought this was BYU. I thought it was Heavenly Father's plan that I be a BYU student. What in the world is going on here? You may chuckle a bit at that representation, perhaps a bit nervously. If you do, it's probably because you've had some experiences along these lines. And so it's to you that I address my remarks. You see... BYU is not Zion. Not yet. It is Zion's university, and it's under construction. It's a work in process. However, and this is the core of my remarks today, here at BYU it is not an academic program or an athletic program or even a missionary or a leadership program that is under construction here. It is you. You and I. We are the whole point of it. Occasionally, it is my great privilege to host colleagues from other universities and other faiths who come to present their academic work in the Marriott School. On several occasions, I've begun the day by driving my colleague to a place overlooking campus. From this vantage point, we can see BYU as well as the Provo Temple and the Missionary Training Center. My objective is to begin the day with a visual of what BYU is all about. I speak briefly to my guests about you students who come here to learn and on whom so much hope is placed by the Church, as evidenced by investments made in your education. I talk about how the education happening simultaneously at the MTC and at the Temple imbues a larger sense of purpose to us here on campus. I share this because I believe that my guests have good hearts and will reverence the message. I believe that they are impressed by the vision of what they see. And I hope that this view is endorsed by what they experience later that day as they meet with faculty and students. Regardless, I know that each time I host a colleague in this manner, I am personally very impressed by the vision of it all. I have many important memories of my time as a student at BYU, most important memories involving my wife and the auspicious beginning of our life together. In trailer number three, a little green trailer in the old Wyview trailer park. I know that each of you, as well, are making important memories here, some of which involve long dog days as you work on classes, exams, tight budgets, 
and other more personal challenges. And while some days can seem very long, I can assure you that the years are very short. Many of you will be shocked at how quickly you find yourselves looking back on this important time and waxing sentimental with someone younger than you. Call it an occupational hazard of the BYU experience. One particular member I want to share today is of going to the administration building shortly after my return from my mission and discovering that each of the devotional addresses that President Holland had given while I was gone were printed in pamphlet form. I picked up a copy of each address and took them back home to catch up. One of those devotional talks absolutely connected with me and became a source of inspiration through my entire school experience. In fact, I still have that pamphlet today. The title of that talk is However Long and Hard the Road. As part of his message, President Holland related some of the wonderful and arduous history of the construction of the Salt Lake Temple. I'd like to share some of his remarks with you today, buttressed by Professor Richard Holzefeld's wonderful history of that construction, which he published in 1992. On the 28th of July, 1847, four days after his arrival in the valley, Brigham Young stood upon the spot where the Salt Lake Temple now rises, struck his cane forcibly on the ground, and exclaimed to his companions, Here we shall build the temple of our God. Wilfred Woodruff then drove a stake into the ground to mark the spot, which tradition indicates is located at the center of the finished temple. The ten-acre lot was designated as the temple block. A week later, Orson Pratt used the corner of the block as a starting point for laying out the city. Planning for the construction began immediately, but the next six years kept the saints occupied just trying to survive. Some saints lost a vision including William Weeks, the original temple architect, and abandoned the effort to return east. But others gave themselves to the work, including Truman Angel, the newly appointed architect, and Daniel Wells, appointed as a committee of one to supervise the construction. The groundbreaking ceremony was finally held on the 14th of February, 1853. The last six years had not been easy for the saints, to say the least. One recollection of an anonymous saint effectively sums up the circumstances in which a mammoth, multi-million-dollar project was about to be launched. I walked to the meeting the morning the ground was broken for the foundation of the temple on the temple block. I went through frozen mud and slush with my feet tied up in rags. I had on a pair of pants made out of my wife's skirt, a thin scotch plaid, and also a thin calico shirt and a straw hat. These were all the clothes I had. It was go that way or stay at home. I was not alone in poverty. There were many who were fixed as badly as I was. The earth was so frozen that day that Heber C. Kimball had to break up the ground with a pick, and President Young took out the first turf, held it up high, and said, Get out of my way, for I'm going to throw this. (laughs) He declared the ground to be broken and closed the meeting. Rather than departing, many of those gathered then rushed forward to the hole to throw out more dirt. President Holland said, Its grounds would cover an eighth of a square mile, and it would be built to stand through eternity. Who cares about money or stone or timber or glass or gold that they don't have? They just marched forth and broke ground for the most massive, permanent, inspiring edifice that they could conceive, and they would spend 40 years of their lives trying to complete it. President Holland went on to report that the work seemed ill-fated from the start. 
The excavation for the basement required trenches 20 feet wide and 16 feet deep, much of it through solid gravel. Just digging for the foundation alone required 9,000 man days of labor. Surely must, someone must have said a temple would be fine, but do we really need one this big? But they kept on digging. Setbacks were the one constant in the temple construction effort. One of the best known being the arrival of Johnston's army in 1858, a deployment which had been ordered by the U.S. president based on rumors back east that the saints were forming a rebellious breakoff from the United States. Brigham Young viewed the coming of the army as government-sanctioned mobbery and ordered the temple foundation buried and the city emptied of its inhabitants. After the threat of Johnston's army had passed and the foundation was dug out again, it was determined that the sandstone foundation rock was unstable, and plans to build a temple with adobe walls were ill-advised. Brigham came to the painful conclusion to tear out the foundation and begin again. This time, granite from Little Cottonwood Canyon, 20 miles away, was selected as the construction material for the temple, and the first quarry in the canyon was opened in 1860. I want to emphasize to you that, in retrospect, the granite work in Little Cottonwood Canyon was amazing and at times must have seemed daunting. Stones, each weighing between two and six tons, were cut out of the mountain using a sledgehammer and a hand drill. Large holes were dug and wagons were backed into the holes to be level with the ground. Each stone was then let down onto logs and rolled onto a heavily reinforced wagon, which was then pulled out by four to six yoke of oxen. The 20-mile trip took as many as four days to transport one large stone. Approximately 60 wagons were employed in a constant rotation to move the granite. One reason for so many wagons is that breakdowns happen regularly. And when I say breakdown, I mean break down. Once a wagon shuddered, shattered under the load, the rock, simply too big to load on flat land, was often unrecoverable and lost to the project. I love President Holland's description of this process. By mid-1871, the walls of the temple were barely visible above ground. Far more visible was the Teamsters' route from Cottonwood strewn with the wreckage of wagons unable to bear the load placed on them. The journals and histories of these Teamsters are filled with accounts of broken axles, mud-mired animals, shattered sprockets, and shattered hopes. I do not have any evidence that these men swore. But surely, they must have been seen turning a rather steely eye toward heaven. <laughs> but they believed and kept pulling. Brother Paul Smith, a local historian of the Salt Lake Temple construction, reports that still today, a number of homeowners in the Standy area of the Salt Lake Valley have these large granite rocks in the yards with chisel marks on them. And some of those owner, homeowners are wondering how in the world those st stones came to be there. At this point in our report from President Holland and Professor Hopsifel, I need to introduce a small character into the story. My great-great-grandfather, Robert Henry Swain. Grandpa Henry and his wife were baptized in Kent, England, in 1853, where he was employed as a policeman and as a member of the Queen's local bodyguard. Like many of our ancestors, Grandpa and his wife Elizabeth and children crossed the Atlantic to make the pioneer trek to Utah. What's unique about Grandpa Henry's story is that when he departed from Liverpool on the 29th of April, 1865, on the ship Bellwood, he left alone. He and Elizabeth had separated five years earlier. 
We don't know the circumstances of the divorce, but we do know that Elizabeth was not happy with Henry and tossed her wedding band into the sea. Grandpa subsequently lost his membership in the church. I imagine that if any of you have been napping, I just captured your attention. What captures my attention and imagination is visualizing Grandpa walking alone into the Great Salt Lake Valley with the William S.S. Willis Wagon Company on the 11th of November, 1865. I wonder what he was thinking and feeling as he entered the valley. What is this divorced and excommunicated brother to do here? He has no useful skills for the saints at that time, and he's not in a position to provide much priesthood service. Grandpa went to work as a stonecutter in Little Cottonwood Canyon and as a stonemason on the temple, where he labored for the next ten years. And while working on the construction of the temple, a reconstruction of his own life began taking place as he returned to full fellowship in the kingdom. Eventually, he became a chief stonemason and established a family occupation that passed forward to many of his descendants, including my father and my brothers and me. As a result, I have some experience with sweating over brick and stone in the summer and working to keep tools and materials unfrozen in the winter. It became my own stay-in-school program and made the work in my doctoral studies a comparatively painless experience. That said, when I look at my soft pink hands today, I miss the quality of that work. And I mourn a little its disappearing legacy as the Swain family line continues to move forward into the information age to acquire new skills in a new economy. At this point, let me return to President Holland's report on the temple construction. And as I do, I want you to imagine Grandpa Henry there in the midst of the process. The precise design and dimensions of every one of the thousands of stones to be used in that massive structure had to be marked out individually in the architect's office and shaped accordingly. This was a suffocatingly slow process. Just to put one layer of the 600 hand-sketched, individually squared and precisely cut stones around the building took nearly three years. That progress was so slow that virtually no one walking by the temple block could ever see any progress at all. By mid-1871, fully two decades and untold misery after it had begun, the walls of the temple were barely visible above the ground. President Brigham Young died in 1877. The temple was still scarcely 20 feet above the ground. Ten years later, his successor, President John Henry, and the temple's original architect, Truman Angel, were dead as well. And the side walls were just up to the square. And now the infamous Edmunds Tucker Act had already been passed by Congress, disincorporating the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the effects of this law was to put the Church into receivership, whereby the U.S. Marshal, under a November court order, seized the Temple of the Saints and now spent just under 40 years of their lives dreaming of, working for, and praying fervently to enjoy. But God was with these modern children of Israel, as He always has been and always will be. They did all they could do and left the rest in His hands. I'll end President Holland's report there. In Brigham Young's speech on that cold February day, when the frozen ground was broken to start the work, with characteristically poignant humor, he told the recent converts attending the ground dedication to not be discouraged because they had not had all the privileges that many of the older members had of being robbed and driven and robbed and plundered of everything they had on earth. For he would promise all who would remain faithful that they too would be tried in all things. 
And so it had been, not surprisingly, a long, hard road. The story of the Salt Lake Temple ends well, as you know, very well. On the 6th of April, 1892, the capstone on which the Angel Moroni statue resides was laid before 50,000 exultant saints waving their handkerchiefs, their jubilant Hosanna shout echoing off the surrounding hills. One year later, on the 6th of April, 1893, 40 years after the groundbreaking and laying of the cornerstones, 75,000 saints, 15,000 more than the total population of Salt Lake City at that time, gathered for the dedication ceremonies. President Wilfred Woodruff, who, as a young apostle, had pounded the stake into the ground to mark Brigham Young's cane print in the dirt, presided at the dedication. He and the First Presidency counseled that everyone planning to attend should first commit themselves to repent and forgive and reconcile all past sins and faults. Elder Franklin D. Richards commented that it was more important for the people to be accepted than for the temple to be accepted. In closing his report on these events more than 115 years ago, Professor Holtzfeld makes the significant observation that these events were much more than the dedication of a building. They represent the dedication of an entire people to God. As long as the saints continue to exhibit such devotion, the temple, rising towards heaven like the mountains around it, rests on a foundation more secure than the cornerstones so carefully placed beneath the reach of mountain floods. It rests on the foundation of faith, the living rock the early pioneers planted more than 150 years ago. Two and a half years after the temple dedication, on the 18th of November, 1895, Grandpa Henry died of a lung disease attributed to working so long in the granite dust. I believe, though, that his work on the temple breathed life back into him. Grandpa died surrounded by his large family. He died fully in the faith. Besides a family tradition of brick and stone masonry, he left a legacy of faith for me. Grandpa Henry was built, was remade into a new creature. C.S. Lewis, drawing from George MacDonald, offers a very insightful description of what Grandpa Henry might have been feeling as he worked in God's stone quarry and worked to repent and to return. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Paul said more directly to the Corinthians, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, at the beginning of this devotional hour, we sang together that great old hymn, Put Your Shoulder to the Wheel. He who is omnipotent really does not need us to move the wheel or to build anything for him. It is not his ultimate objective to cover the world with chapels and temples. That is a means to his end, and I believe we can all easily quote that end, his ultimate objective. For behold, 
this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Brothers and sisters, I believe he cares more about the shoulder than about the wheel. The wheel is how we are moved to come home to him. The wheel, the work, is a blessing to us. This is so important. The work is a blessing. I think that sometimes we live as if the gospel life was an exercise in delayed consumption. By giving up fun and leisure now, while the heathen and heretic party on, we'll get ours in the eternities and it's going to be great watching those heathens and heretics sweat it out while we relax. I think that the parable of the ant and the grasshopper has done us some disservice in this regard. To that end, I would refer to you a very interesting dream vision that Wilfred Woodruff had of meeting Joseph Smith in heaven, in heaven, and of being amazed that the Lord's vineyard work does go on in the spirit world and that it goes on with even more focus than on earth. As I reread this account, I made a personal observation that President Woodruff seemed to be a bit disappointed initially at this report of heaven, but was quickly satisfied that this was good doctrine. As a bishop, I occasionally had the opportunity to counsel a brother or a sister who was tired of the hard work of full-time school and a part-time job, or even a full-time school and a full-time job. All of this combined with the church calling, and all of this combined with the pressure of keeping commandments, reading scriptures, praying, and attending the temple. As I visited with some of these individuals, they expressed that they just didn't think they could hold on any longer and were not convinced that the hard work was worth it. On some level, I felt that I could relate. As a bishop, there were some long dog days in which I dragged myself to the bishop's office feeling strongly that I simply had nothing to give to the ward members that day and even feeling a little sorry for myself. Thank goodness. I have a dear wife who knew how to rough me up a bit and kick me out the door on occasion. Because, and this is very significant to me, every single evening I left that bishop's office, I felt like I was levitating six inches off of the ground. Isaiah counseled, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I want to acknowledge a wonderful group of new accounting majors. It was my privilege to teach this last winter semester. Those who major in the married school know of the intensity of the infamous junior core year in the School of Accountancy. My course forms part of this core curriculum. My students were all deeply involved in wrapping up the most intense academic year of their lives. They had worked hard, but they stayed engaged. These were terrific colleagues in the classroom, and I was blessed to be a part of their semester. One email sent to me shortly after the close of the semester resonated strongly with me as I prepared these remarks for you. With the permission of a good student, I share with you part of his email. A few days ago, I thought of the Junior Corps when I was reading Press On, a book by Elder Worthlin. He shared a story of a psychology professor at the University of Chicago who spent 25 years studying what makes people happy. The professor concluded, The best moments in our lives usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Junior Corps is similar to serving a mission. Sometimes the days never seem to end. Sometimes you wonder what you got yourself into. 
Sometimes you question if all your work is worthwhile, if you cannot see the results of your efforts. Then, all of a sudden, it does end. Ironically, you wish it wasn't ending because you look back and see how you've grown. You see the experiences that have pushed and stretched you, and you see the friendships that have developed through months of hard work. I love how this student is teaching me about the concept of long days and short years that seem to be characteristic of good work, of God's work. I believe that my students and I were about Heavenly Father's work in our accounting 402 classroom. He really doesn't care that much about debits and credits, nor does he care about quizzes and exams, though I should hurry to say that this is good knowledge that my students, that will empower my students to be effective as good business professionals. Heavenly Father cares more about the shoulder than he does about the wheel. He cared about what my students were becoming as a result of the work. And in my limited observation, it seems that many of these students became better temples of Heavenly Father's Spirit in the process of struggling and succeeding in Accounting 402. As I close now, I'd like to make one final observation. And I'd like to return to my brothers and sisters who are tired and perhaps a little cynical of the work here at BYU. In my study of the gospel, it has been pointed out to me that there are many qualities of God's eternal life that are a paradox. Sometimes the opposite of an important and profound truth is another important and profound truth. Jesus and his servants occasionally taught in terms of profound paradox, some of which you'll remember. Bridle all your passions, that you may be filled with love. He who seeketh to save his life shall lose it. And the ultimate and wonderful paradox of God's mercy and justice. Satan, on the other hand, would confuse us with counterfeits. For example, he would try to confuse our testimony that justice and mercy are the same wonderful doctrine with the irrelevant fact that vengeance and indulgence are irreconcilable opposites. I hope that today I haven't confused you with the idea that the objective of this life is to work ourselves to death. Jesus taught, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Alma the Elder personally experienced this wonderful paradox. And now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. In my heart, I see Grandpa Henry trudging into the great Salt Lake Valley, laden with his own burdens. The Lord's tender response was not to grant a reprieve and a vacation. Rather, Grandpa Henry was invited to come, follow me and give himself to the Lord's will and to his work. The blessed work was restful and refreshing, and Grandpa was renewed. The key to finding rest and renewal is to give ourselves wholly and wholeheartedly to God's work and to his will. To resist and live the half-life is exhausting. Brothers and sisters, may we give ourselves to this great work here at BYU. And in so doing, be built ourselves into the Lord's temple. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is learning from hardships and adversity. We've just heard from Monty R. Swain. After the break, we'll return for Niwako Yamawaki with An Immigrant's Journey Toward God. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is learning from hardships and adversity. Next is Niwako Yamawaki, a BYU professor of psychology when this address was given, entitled An Immigrant's Journey Toward God. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. It is my great honor and pleasure to speak at this BYU devotional today. What brought me to this incredibly inspiring and unique place? No one, including myself, could have ever imagined that I would be in standing before you to talk about my journey as a convert and immigrant to the U.S. Once, I was just a girl from a tiny Japanese fishing village called Usa. I was likely to live out my life simply and traditionally in Japan. However, I am a very different person today because of very devout and dedicated missionaries. When I was 14, a classmate of mine invited me to attend a free English conversation class provided by American missionaries. They were unusually kind and considerate young men. They invited me to learn of their main reason for coming to Japan, to teach that God exists and loves us all. However, for a 14-year-old girl raised in a predominantly non-Christian country, it was difficult for me to truly feel and grasp what God's love was until I met one particular missionary, Elder Annette. His powerful example impressed my teenage heart soul, and mind, showing to me clearly the loving nature of the God and the sacrificial devotion of the Jesus that he so earnestly taught me about. Unlike today, with missionaries paying a flat fee for their expenses, missionaries before had to fund their service based on the local living expenses of their missions. Japanese missions were amongst the most expensive in the world then. Elder Annette's family had limited means, so he had to live very frugally. When his father passed away during his mission, He chose to stay in Japan to continue serving without interruption 
the people he had come to love. Elder Annette did not say anything about his financial situation to me, but his companion told me that he had to limit his food expenses. He divided pasta into a daily portion using a rubber band like this. Elder Annette did not just talk about God's love. He lived it. Moreover, not only did he teach me that there was a God, but also that that God loves me. This became the most important and fundamental core of my testimony and has helped me whenever I have experienced pain and suffering in my life. After baptism, I began accepting many calls to serve, but my favorite calling was a branch missionary. One special investigator, Brother Takezaki, opened my vision of God in an exceptionally transformative way. He was seeking God keenly and was overjoyed with hearing of the saving ordinances of the temple for a beloved deceased. He became excited about the prospect of receiving baptism himself and then having his deceased mother receive baptism someday in the Tokyo temple. One well-intentioned but misguided sister in our branch discouraged his excitement for his mother to receive baptism because she had committed suicide. The light in his soul seemed to expire, and he stopped pursuing baptism himself. I was heartbroken for Brother Takezaki and for the eternal status of his beloved mother, and my own soul became troubled. I prayed for him and for his mother and searched for answers for my troubled soul every day for two years. My prayers eventually led me to a general conference sermon on this precise topic entitled, Suicide, Some Things We Know and Some We Do Not. In his October 1987 sermon, Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles spoke in detail about suicide. He quoted another apostle, the late Elder Bruce R. McConkie, on the topic. Suicide consists in the voluntary and intentional taking of one's own life, particularly 
where the person involved is accountable and has a sound mind. Persons subject to great stress may lose control of themselves and become mentally clouded to the point that they are no longer accountable for their act. Such are not to be condemned for taking their own lives. It should also be remembered that the judgment is the Lord's. He knows the thoughts, intents, and abilities of man, and He, in His infinite wisdom, will make all things right in due course. As Elder Ballard said in the title of his conference talk, some things we know and some we do not. Therefore, I've learned that practicing mercy while withholding judgment and criticism of others is the best way for me to serve others and be close to God. At the same time, this was my first personal encounter with mental illness. When I pursued the call of the Spirit to come to America to seek something more, something with which I could serve others more fully, I faced life from a completely different perspective. In Japan, I had had a comfortable life. Although I had come from a small fishing village, my father had succeeded as the captain of a large fishing vessel and had traveled the world. I had wanted for nothing, neither materially nor emotionally. And was largely respected and supported by my family and community. Suddenly, however, I was nothing special. In the US, more precisely, I was less than special. I was just an Asian woman simply pursuing her education. In college, I was hurtfully called a token Asian female. I felt as if I had to work twice as hard to prove myself, earning nothing less than A's in every single course I took. I was driven to prove myself, but felt like I could never fully measure up. No matter how much I worked, I felt like just a token minority and sometimes even a completely invisible person. I lost my confidence and self worth and felt as if even God might not care about me since other people thought that I was nothing. But I had to push forward and live my life, 
Eventually, I graduated from a doctoral program in counseling psychology and became a licensed psychologist in Utah. As I said before, the fundamental and most crucial core of the testimony that I received as a convert was that God exists and loves us all. I also stated that it is better for me to practice mercy, withholding judgment and criticism of others as the best way for me to be close to God. This testimony and conviction of mine have been tested often since I came to the U.S. As a graduate student, I met countless persons from diverse and varied backgrounds. Offering counseling to inmates at Salt Lake County Jail, I personally learned that some inmate patients of mine had been abandoned and abused physically, emotionally, and or sexually. Some of their life stories were painfully brutal and harsh for me to hear. I also met a client who had been abused by her own father. She was completely broken and damaged and wanted to terminate her existence. She told me how agonizing it was for her when she had to sing the primary hymn, Families Can Be Together Forever. I felt their pain and suffering of all of these abused children of God, and it made my head spin. With some cases, I got nauseated in seeing how evil perpetrators of abuse can be. How can I practice mercy without throwing judgment and criticism on perpetrators? Yes, it was easy for me to practice mercy and be empathetic towards victims. However, it was nearly impossible for me to believe that our Father in Heaven even loves unconditionally those perpetrators. Did Jesus really come for perpetrators of abuse too? Even though I still cannot fully understand it, the answer is, yes, He did. He came for all of us, no exceptions. In the end, the Lord will make things right for both victims and perpetrators. The Lord himself said, But I say unto you which hear, Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you.
And as he would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. But love ye your enemies, and do good. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Serving at the Salt Lake YWCA shelter for women, I met many victims of domestic violence. But one woman's abuse experience in particular still haunts me. Like me, she was a Japanese immigrant to the U.S. Like me, she had married a return missionary from Japan. But unlike me, her troubled husband had physically abused her. She was told to put ketchup and mustard on her face and apologized to her husband without knowing what she had to apologize for. Then he would hit her repeatedly. The memory of her harrowing experience along with that of many more victims of violence against women, with whom I was consequently privileged to work, fueled my passion to serve this community, particularly those amongst immigrants to our country. Thus began my passion to research why domestic violence happens how we can stop it, and what are the best ways to assist its victim. I still see pain and struggle in people all around me today, and it troubles me. In particular, I care deeply about the suffering of my own students, especially that of my research assistants, because I work with them very closely. When hearing many stories of the suffering of my students, I have cried and felt very depressed. One was called the N-word, and another one was reported to the owner code office because he who had come out as gay, was simply chatting with his male friends. I also had a student who was an undocumented immigrant. She was often mistreated and discriminated against. I have felt their pain, and I have suffered with them. During This painful time, somehow, I think about Jesus. The scars in his hands are the proof of his suffering and pain. 
even though he was resurrected and has a perfect body, he decided to keep his cars. I think this is because he wanted to show that he is the Savior, our Savior. I also believe that he decided to keep his scars because he wants us to know that he also suffered and experienced so much pain. I feel as if he tells me, I love each one of you so much that I was willing to become one of you, to show each of you that I was willing to take on your sufferings so that I can feel fully your pain and identify with each of you. This reminds me of the beautiful Book of Mormon scriptural description of our Lord's identification with our mortal suffering. The Son of God shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death that he may lose the bands of death which binds his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Then, I felt extremely close to him. God exists and loves us all. No exceptions. BYU is a very special university. It offers me, and hopefully many of you, the perfect place to explore the union of spirit with science. Some of my stories about which I talked today are very depressing and maybe discouraging. However, I want you to know that I am very hopeful. I have met many students in the Department of Psychology who are young, faithful, and smart, who also have great intention and motivation to help people who are suffering and in pain. Oh man, they are eager to learn how to effectively help others by studying human behavior and prepare themselves to go to the world to serve others. I see burning testimonies 
in their eyes. My role as a faculty member here is to teach and share scientific knowledge and professional skills and to raise awareness of social problems about which our Lord is concerned. My journey to discover God goes on. I know that I will continue to experience pain and suffering, as will we all. When suffering myself, I may ask sometimes, why me during my journey? However, I now am grateful for my pain. If I had not immigrated to or been a minority in the U.S., I likely would have had a comfortable life without much pain in Japan. But my pain as an immigrant has made me who I am today. I know for sure that I can keep pushing forward on my journey because I know that God lives and that God loves me. The next step and challenge for me is to answer this question. Do I love God enough in return? I'm blessed immensely to have come to know that restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed to be a part of this beloved community of God-seekers and this esteemed institution of higher learning, Brigham Young University. Indeed, we enter to learn, but may we more fully embrace our calling to then go forth and serve. As the Lord himself told us, in the service of others, and in taking up our own crosses of suffering, we will find our own selves. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Learning from Hardships and Adversity with thoughts from Monty R. Swain and Niwako Yamawaki. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byu.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.